0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, reverse engineering incentives to improve security, the New Jersey school district's computers were held ransom, and the flash bug that's been around since 2011 with a new twist, plus some great security and networking questions, drone-powered internet, and much, much more, all in this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 207 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on March twenty sixth, two 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? Why, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should probably go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher,
1: Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching.
0: Hello, and yay, the Tetris light is on behind you this week, Alan. We, we yeah. accidentally went on air last week with the light off. It was devastating. It
1: was devastating.
0: Right, no. No, I like
1: to change it up every once in a while.
0: <laughs> you just, okay. Hey, I'm really excited. I'm in a really good mood today because uh, I believe, as of yesterday, your Linux Fest Northwest plans are locked in, right? You're cool. all set? All set. I, and uh, you're going to get a little early, too. I don't know how much we want to uh, tease ahead of time, but... Uh, we might get a little extra Alan studio time this year, which would be really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Alan's going to be at Linux Fest Northwest, as will Chris Moore, myself, and the whole JB crew uh, over at Linux Fest Northwest. You can find out more. Go to LinuxFestNorthwest.org, and it's April 25th and 26th. I'm super excited. I-, I think you're probably going to get an in studio text snap, which only happens about once a year these days. Yeah. So, that's pretty cool. And if you'd like to help fund our effort with the travel expenses and costs for the crew and all that kind of stuff, you can go to teespring.com slash Linux, and get yourself a Linux Action Show hoodie. And you know, uh, Alan, I think also a little birdie tells me that the uh, TechSnap uh, shirt recently relaunched. So I think that's actually available too. <laughs> but uh, if you want to help with our Linux Fest Northwest coverage, teespring.com slash Linux. A bunch of great shirts over there. I'm really excited, Alan, to do TechSnap in person. Okay. Nice.
1: The, uh, the TechSnap shirt is open again. Yeah,
0: that's what I was saying. Yeah. so And that's at teespring.com slash TechSnap, right? Yeah, the, yes. the, uh, the new logo shirt. Which uh, you know? Yes,
1: I, I I wore mine last week. Yeah, so I didn't want to wear wow. the end.
0: 333 so, sold right now. That's kind of a power number. I yes. kind of like that. Six days left. If you want to get in on that second round again, Tspring.com slash Let's see if we
1: can't beat the number from last time. Now,
0: yeah, let's do it. Wow, that's amazing that happened again. We didn't even promote it while we have another shirt running, <laughs> right? <laughs> like think about that.
1: <laughs> well, I think it might have been because we I showed off my shirt last week. And then all of a sudden, everybody's like, "Oh, I forgot to get mine!" Like,
0: <laughs> you think that might have been it? Wow! Yeah. Talk about native advertising, Alan. Jeez, Louise. Okay, so uh, our first story this week we got a big sh- we got a big show. We should start right now. Uh, comes mm-hmm. in uh, uh, on the topic of incentives, which I always find to be extremely interesting to look at why people do things, especially in cybersecurity. So, is this where we're starting
1: now? Yes. Uh, so this one's interesting. Uh, I don't know if he just used it as the introduction, or if this is actually how he came up with the idea. Uh, but, uh, Gunnar Peterson, who's a fairly well-known security researcher, uh, over at his blog, uh, he starts off the article with a picture of the cover of, uh, Sam Walton's book about, uh, turning Walmart into what it is. Yeah. Uh, and it's called Made in America or whatever, but he says, uh, never ever think about something else when you should be thinking about the power of incentives. Right. Mm. Right. Uh, So he says, you know, back in the 1980s, uh, Walmart uh, was kind of having a problem with uh, stock shrinkage, which is the commercial way of saying things go missing. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, a part of that is obviously, you know, people steal stuff. But also, you know, employees tend to sometimes steal things. And, uh, you know, a certain percentage of that is just something the store gets used to dealing with. Uh, But he created an incentive program. And the idea was that if a individual store managed to keep the uh, shrinkage level below a certain uh, percentage, then uh, everybody that worked there got a bonus that year. And so once they implemented that, uh, you know, the shrinkage levels went way down uh, and to like half of what other stores were having without having this incentive program. Uh, and he also mentioned that associates felt uh, better about each other because they know, you know, most people don't enjoy stealing, but if there was nothing to stop them mm. from doing it, mm-hmm. they would. Mm-hmm. But knowing that there was this incentive thing and that, you know... Everybody was kind of on the same them, page but with it. It would affect everybody, yeah. yes. So everybody uh, was, you know, keeping an eye open and not turning a blind eye to it and, and so on and, 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 and turn out and make a difference. But also, it apparently had the side effect of making everybody happier and, and nicer to each other and so on. Interesting. And so Gunner starts off saying, "You know, I've often said that no one wants to write insecure code." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so he's wondering if we could maybe do the same thing, right? Just like nobody wants to steal, nobody wants to write insecure
0: code. Oh, I see. I'm grokking.
1: <clears throat> so he said, "Could a company put a fixed number each year toward, you know, the average cost of a security breach, and then if it doesn't happen, credit that back as a bonus to the?" St- the tech right, staff, the right. developers, and systems. Oh, that, you're right. You know, a, a digital version of the, you know, X days since last workplace injury type thing. Uh, you know, he says, my guess is that incentives along those lines would probably work way better than the majority of the products sold at the uh, RSA conference trade show floor <laughs> and for a fraction of the cost. And he says, uh, you know, the biggest change he sees from that would not actually be a hard change, but just a change in the mentality of the people that have to work on security and just the people who are in charge of security all of a sudden wouldn't be, a, you know, the bad guys in the eyes of the developers and the sysadmins, right? Because now all of a sudden the developers and sysadmins have hmm. an incentive to work together with the security people to get things done sure. rather than being like, ah, in ah, damn or security tribes people or, just keep yeah. uh, causing us problems or saying we can't do this or yeah. that yeah. the other thing so on. Yeah.
0: Huh. That's an interesting yeah, and, he says,
1: and so, uh, you know, from his perspective, he says, I think security people would enjoy feeling as being welcome for their skills instead of shunned and avoided.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Don't talk to the security guy. He's just going to be a drag. Don't talk to that guy.
1: <laughs> He's always a downer. Uh, so, yeah. And it goes on from there. And he. Uh, so then he also digs into the possible problems with the idea and how to try to solve some of them. OK. Um. You know. The biggest one is how do we define what is a breach to decide when we don't pay out the bonus.
0: Mm, Right, right? you don't want that to be too slippery.
1: Right, because then it's like, well, the company's always going to, oh, well, there was that one bug, and so nobody gets a bonus. Right. Uh, But at the same time, you know, we don't want to be paying out the bonus. (laughs) So it does kind of make sense to have a pool that the fallout from security problems has to be paid out of. And at the end of the year, if there's any money left in it, then that's the bonus that gets divided up between the people or something like that, right? And, you know, that kind of brings up the thing, well, why don't we, instead of incentivizing everybody as a group, why don't we incentivize individual people? You know, pay for each bug found or fixed or something like that. But, you know, that could lead to the cobra effect or uh, he cites a different version of it, the rattlesnake effect, but that's just an Americanized version of the same thing. But the basic idea (laughs) of that one was... Back uh, in the colonial, colonial time. times when the, the British uh, colonized India, uh, the British people were not big fans of cobras. Uh-huh. I can imagine. Snakes. <laughs> so, so they were like, okay, uh, as the government, we will pay you uh, for every dead cobra you bring us. Okay. Okay. Uh, and that worked very well at first. And people right. went out and found cobras and killed them and brought them to the government and, Cobras and got paid. <laughs> okay. And then there were there were fewer snakes and everybody was happy. And then the enterprising people decided, well, you know, if I started breeding cobras... Oh, no. Then right. I could make lots of money by, you know, killing them. And, yes. Right? And I would always have lots of uh, um, cobras that way. Uh, so then the government's like, oh, well, I guess we, are, we won't pay people anymore because you guys are just gaming the system. Right. So then they just set all the cobras free. And then there were more cobras than they started with. And yes, the chat room mentioned they heard the same thing about rats. Oh, yes. Apparently, the French made the same mistake in Vietnam. Uh, When they (laughs) colonized Vietnam, they're like, okay, there's too many rats. Uh, Kill rats and bring us the tail as proof because we don't want the whole dead rat because that'll just be messy. Well, it turns out what they would do is cut the tail off the rat and let the rat go so the rat would keep breeding and making more rats so they could get more rat tails. Clever. And so all they did was end up with a bunch of tailless rats running around the city instead of... It didn't actually reduce the number of rats.
0: Yeah, that's even more gross in a
1: way. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, rat's going to get infected because of the open wound or something. So yes, that's gonna have a bunch the of cobra effect. Rats. Yeah, So the cobra effect. Uh, so basically, if we start paying people for each bug, it's like, all right, hey, Chris add a bunch of bugs to the code and I'll right? fix them. Yeah. And then I'll add a bunch and you fix them and we'll both I, get paid. I,
0: we could just have like – you could have the one company that develops it and then a, and then like a sub company that knows about all the bugs that you contract to to fix it.
1: <laughs> yeah, or something like that. And, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, people would just game the system. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so the idea is how do we set out what's the, uh, the criteria? And right. so the idea was why don't we say uh, – if we don't end up on the front page of the newspaper in a security breach story, that means everyone gets a bonus payout roughly equal to what it would have cost, uh, us to respond to such a breach. And then, you know, that should tend to focus the minds and inspire people and get them fired up and ready to go and be like, hey, let's go install some patches.
0: Yay, patches.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's not perfect, of course, but it has the advantages of focusing attention onto the issues, uh of strategic impact and put security people, developers, and systemmins on the same side of the table, right? And, you know, that is long overdue and a very powerful organizational tool. Mm. You know, some might argue that incentives are silly. You know, these are def- professional developers. They should already be trying to do this. <laughs> and uh, that we, uh, what we need is regulation. And uh, it's like we've used regulations. You know, there's PCI or computer security policies at companies for a long time. Yeah. They're not worthless, but they don't seem to be working that well either. Right, right. And so at very least, uh, you know, they're one tool in the toolbox. And if we do both things, maybe that'll help.
0: And it can be done with experimentation too.
1: Yeah. But, you know, just because we have one doesn't mean we shouldn't use both, right? Yeah. And then uh, security people's main role is to be a barrier between uh, an organization and stupid. (laughs) Uh, So the real question is what kind of barrier is the most effective, right? Regulations create the hostile, uh, tactical, and divided environments in which security people operate today. Uh, bonuses have a way of getting people's attention, and I've noticed that it have a way of getting people to work together, and that will likely uh, produce a better outcome. And uh, what I think the outcome here would look like is uh, simplifying the coordination between the security team and the development and ops teams. Uh, you know. He says when I go up uh, on a consulting engagement, he spends 30 to 50 percent of his times uh, doing, you know, James Baker-style shuttle diplomacy, going back and forth between the two sides, uh, trying to convince the devs and the ops folks that security is not deliberately setting out to destroy their timeline, their bonus, or their career. Uh, if you just took that position out of it and. Uh, means that any security time and dollars that are spent are going to actually solve actual security problems instead of just being security slash dev slash ops glasnost. Right?
0: Right.
1: So it's an interesting idea. Well,
0: Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting idea. Uh, It seems like in order for it to work, though, there would have to be sort of an established income where you could say, all right, we'll take some of the revenue and dedicate this this dev- development budget towards the incentive system. And if you don't have a, a, a strong income source, if you're not a very profitable right. software company, wouldn't this be a challenge to sort of do something like this?
1: Well, so the idea here is, is you're using the pool of money you would have used uh, oh, if bug you bounties got breached. And... Ah. Oh. Right. Right. So, so the amount of money we would have spent dealing with it if we had been the breach and been on the front page of the New York Times, so we have that money set aside so that when we get hacked, we'll be able to respond to it. And if we didn't end up having to do it, then we can pay that out as a bonus. What happens, though, if they
0: also still get hacked? <laughs> you know what I'm uh, saying? What?
1: He, he was suggesting like a two-year rolling cycle uh, thing okay. for right. it. Yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts, so yeah. though, on how open
0: source would handle this?
1: Yeah, that's uh, the biggest problem here is that it only seems to work if everybody's uh, – it only seems to work at like a commercial software company or, or some commercial company that has a big IT department – where you know they have security development ops, is three separate departments that are going to be fighting with each other or something, and uh, or more where they you know are going to have the kind of budget to do this.
0: With
1: mm-hmm. uh, smaller places, it's probably a little different. Yeah, I and mean, it, I, with open source, you know, when you're not paying people to work on it, then you have uh, completely different. I worked for a pretty small consulting firm that still managed to have a
0: very successful incentive structure for the consultants, and I really I watched that work really well. Uh, and the other thing that I think. That it was interesting that that piece didn't touch on, is if you set up an incentive structure for this kind of things, you know, uh, what it also sort of does is tells the finance people and the CIOs and the CTOs and the executives that this is a valuable thing to spend our time and money on. Like, it, it, yep. I, I, what I was surprised they didn't touch on is what a culture shift it would take at the top level to sort of rethink the way they incentivize. And then when they would do that, they would have to think, well, why are we incentivizing this way? Because these xyz things matter to us in our products and we want to pay on based on that and i think just it would be a very good exercise for an executive level standpoint to think about uh, incentive structures for uh, code quality even if nothing ever happened and the article didn't yep. really touch on that very much as it could have huge benefits at that level too
1: yeah but at the same time i can see how there have been so many breaches lately that the damage to your reputation for having one isn't as is- bad as it used to be Mm. just because it's like oh you're just another one of a big crowd yeah
0: yeah well it's not as bad as target so you're okay that's like the benchmark now you know oh you didn't get as big of a leak as target oh you're all right it's not target bad so you're okay
1: yeah just wait till walmart Uh,
0: walmart gets hacked
1: mm -hmm. well i don't know walmart has a fairly big team yeah of actual people i know uh, a couple of them yeah i would imagine they
0: must i bet walmart spends quite a bit of money on that yeah, and, well,
1: and uh, more of it. Yeah, they just have Isn't that the other
0: stuff. side though? Like the the bigger you are and the longer you go without a big public breach, the more the pressure is on in a way too to make sure it never happens. Yep. Like that's a t- that's a tough one as well from the other side of the fence.
1: But, but yeah, uh, nobody nobody hears about it when the company manages to defend itself from an attack. Right.
0: Yeah, you don't see big don't headlines. What bad news. Walmart <laughs> continues 225-day streak of not being hacked or whatever it would be. Like, you don't yeah. see that headline. <laughs> yeah, so. All right, Alan, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. Is there a mouse on your face? Oh, I guess there's a mouse on your door. Sorry, Alan. There's a mouse on your door. Uh, all right. Well, let's take a minute. I'll move the mouse off your door, and uh, we can thank DigitalOcean, the first sponsor of the TechSnap program this week. Head over to DigitalOcean.com and check out maybe just the best damn way to spin up your own cloud server on demand. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your cloud server. You're going to have root access. You're going to get an HTML5 console. You can SSH into that bad boy in no time. You can take care of all of your DNS management, and you're going to be able to get started in less than 55 seconds. And DigitalOcean has pricing plans to start. Start at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20-gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte, one terabyte of transfer That's for $5. For $5, right? That's great. And, man, I really love DigitalOcean's interface. And it's, it's really super intuitive and powerful. And I think one of the best things for me has been, like, with DigitalOcean, I, I got a selection of data centers I can choose from for diversity. Uh, They have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. You combine all of that flexibility, the SSD backend I.O., the great uh, connections they have at their data centers with their intuitive control panel that you can replicate the functionality of with DigitalOcean's API. And it really is a great combination. You can do full feature DNS management. You can take snapshots, recover, restore from a snapshot, and set up a whole new rig. That's a really great time saver. One-click installation of a lot of great different software packages. HTML5 console access, SSH key management, droplet transfer, snapshot destruction, like all kinds of really nice stuff in a beautiful interface. Go over to DigitalOcean and use our promo code. SnapOcean—that's one word, lowercase—and you'll get a ten-dollar credit. You can try out the five-dollar rig two months, absolutely free, and then you just apply a balance whenever you need to. And it's really straightforward. So you can go over to DigitalOcean, use the promo code SnapOcean, try out a droplet for two months, absolutely free. You're not even going to need a credit card, and really see the difference DigitalOcean can make and how cool it is. I've heard from all kinds of users set up Mumble servers, Minecraft servers, own cloud servers, yep. GitLab servers, BitTorrent sync servers. Uh, a, a sparkle share, like the, the, I mean, the one that I have been really, my personal success has been, I really, 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 really value my own cloud server. But there's a lot of things you can do on DigitalOcean, a lot of things, including just reuse it the the backend BSD. infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, free BSDs on there too. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah Mike, we run our, our status page there so that uh, we can, you know, post notices about stuff in case our website's ever having problems.
0: Very nice, sir. Very nice. Which has never happened, but... No, of course not. Of course not. Of course not. And they have great community uh, tutorials and uh, all that stuff. Go check out... (laughs) This is a really great offering. And just don't forget that promo code, SNAPOcean, so the TechSnap program gets credit, and you get that $10 credit to your account. DigitalOcean.com, SNAPOcean. And also, DigitalOcean is hiring, so check out the careers at DigitalOcean. They have a lot of open positions right now. Might be a great opportunity for you to get some work. DigitalOcean.com. I am a droplet fiend, Alan. I lack me the servers. Okay. So uh, we're going to go to New Jersey for our next story. And it's we've talked about these uh, ransomwares before. But a lot of times mm-hmm. we talk about it more on smaller scale deployments. Like somebody's home computer or an office machine gets infected. Or right, was it, the, was it the
1: Synology NASA's being well, That was uh, a bigger scale that one. That was definitely. Yeah.
0: A, now this, what is this? are we what, When you say we're going to New Jersey School District, is that like the whole district cut this? What happened? Uh,
1: yeah, it was a, a bunch of schools, although I think in total it was only like 1,700 students. But a school board, anyway. Uh, so yeah, the uh, attackers managed to take over the Gloucester uh, uh, County School District's computer network and uh, is holding all the files ransom for 500 bitcoins, which is about $130,000. And then the the school uh, superintendent says, without working computers, teachers cannot take attendance, access phone numbers or records of students, and students cannot purchase food in the cafeterias. Uh, Parents also cannot receive emails with student grade or other information and notices. And the superintendent said that... uh, The attacker did not access any personal information about students, families, or teachers. Okay. Uh, However, it's unclear how the attacker could have, uh, could prevent teachers from accessing records that include things like students' parents' phone numbers, but somehow the attacker doesn't have access to that information. So I'm guessing they're saying, well, he just encrypted it on our server. He didn't actually exfiltrate it, but I'm not sure how they could be sure of that.
0: Right. He just looked at it, but he didn't copy it.
1: Right. Well, in this case, it seems all they want is their bitcoins right but anyway uh the superintendent said without our smart boards students use pens paper and pencils uh and uh, he says going back to how education was 20 or 30 years ago it's like oh no we didn't have a smart whiteboard no smart board when i was teaching college a couple years ago we still there was only like two (laughs) smart boards in the whole school Yeah, yeah
0: yeah
2: yeah
1: it's like, if your students don't know how to use a pa- piece of paper... And somehow you got so. by, right? Yeah. Uh, but it seems like uh, all their stuff is a little too interdependent if the smart board in every classroom relies on the same system that the cafeteria payment system does. But I'm sure that's because some company sold the school it's a, board... Yeah, it's a, a whole package. A school, running, ...a school management software system.
0: Yeah, it's a, Yeah, it's a whole crappy package. Yeah.
1: Uh, They say, we are still a long way from being fully operational. Uh, We have to work to restore the functionality of all of our computers. Uh, The school district is being forced to postpone its uh, Common Core mandated uh, Park State exams because their computers don't work.
0: (laughs) Uh, For some reason, that just makes me laugh.
1: Yeah. Uh, And so really, it kind of raises the question is, why doesn't the school system have a better backup plan? Hmm. A, a backup so they could just restore their computers and be done with it, and B, a backup plan as in, right, if our server goes down for whatever reason, we have some offsite system or something that we can use so that we can still feed the students at lunchtime. <laughs> 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 Maybe the cafeteria could just write some stuff down on paper and run it through after or whatever, right? Like, students have balances You mean, like,
0: like, some sort of, like, register where they could... Write down the transactions and log them? Yeah. Hmm. I don't think such technology exists. Uh, uh, see, I, uh,
1: you know, I understand, especially if it's like a grade school or something, you don't have kids carrying money and paying for the lunch yeah, they yeah. have. My some son's school system. doesn't. Yeah, right,
2: yeah.
1: Uh, but yes, if the system was down, it's like, okay, Chris's kid had, you know, $3.50 worth of food today, and we'll just run it through the computer tomorrow when it's fixed. Yeah. You know, it's like sure there's a little bit of a chance of the system being game there or whatever, but if it's only a couple of days, what's the big deal?
0: I I suppose that they would probably they would probably not break the bank too badly.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, and but yeah, it seems like they need to have a better system for a being able to restore their data so they don't lose anything without having to pay the ransom, and b being able to operate when something's broken Mm -hmm. because it seems like they had no you know cold failover or anything like that uh and it's kind of interesting I, I was actually going to talk about it on the show a couple weeks ago but you know it, we never had the right chance to stick it in but it, this one seems like it when i was consulting at uh the college where i used to teach a couple of weeks ago i was helping them set up their the unix service students use and uh while i was there uh the the uh, file server system for the uh, nursing students got hit with CryptoLocker. No, yeah, somebody opened an email attachment or something, and oh, it went wild and gosh. encrypted the whole shared S drive that everybody has access Attachments to. Attachments gone wild. Uh, well, the college, having a backup and everything, oh, okay, okay, uh, just dumped the server and restored it from a backup from that morning, and was back online in a couple of hours. Uh, the biggest thing was because. It was the nursing school, it's off site because it's actually at the the university where they teach uh, where they had the medical school. Mm-hmm. So it was uh being slowed down by the fact that they were having to go over their um their point to point link between the two campuses. Yeah. And so it was basically saturating that link while we're storing the backup. And then nothing else could go over that. That was the annoyance to them was that it was slowing down other traffic and it was taking longer than it should have because they were doing a backup over uh, basically not an internet connection but a a point-to-point connection. But they got it all back relatively quickly. And in general, students at the college didn't know what happened. They just knew there was a problem and then it was fixed. And, you know, you could still pay for your lunch in the cafeteria. (laughs) I I was actually teasing the people in IT prep. It's like, you know, if your storage server had just been ZFS and you had, you know, a snapshot regimen, you could have just been like, okay, let's go back to 15 minutes before CryptoLocker and ZFS rollback. Snap. Okay, everything's back. Yeah. You know, it's true. It's very true. But you still need backups of everything all the time, right? So you can use these ZFS snapshots as the basis of your backup, but you still need to have a backup uh, because, you know, If all you have is a replica or something, then, you know, if the crypto locker runs and you don't notice and then you back up the crypto versions of your files, then you're screwed. Mm -hmm. And that's why you have to have backups that actually have, you know, aging and stuff. So you have multiple versions. So if, you know, the version from this morning turns out to have been screwed up already because the virus hit last night, uh, we need to be able to get the version from the morning before and so on.
0: It's very true.
1: But really, a full disaster recovery plan is, or in order for a school board, right? Students still need to be able to, you know, teachers still need to be able to access the critical information, like parents' phone number, in case a kid gets a kid gets sick or something. Uh, even if their computers down, it seems like they should have a paper backup of some of these records for things like phone numbers. I can't believe uh, they don't. But I guess
0: I guess to save money, maybe they don't print it. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Uh, But yeah, there's a bunch of different things here. It just seems like, A, they're too reliant on the computers, and B, they don't have enough uh, backup system in place. So that if the computer goes down, even if it was, oh, our server for it, the power supplies both blew up at the same time or something, and we didn't have a spare, and we have to wait a couple days for a replacement. Well, you know, we have a thing over here where we can spin up a VM and restore it to it and be done. That's... That's that's really what they should
0: look into. Um, it, you know, the the, the fact is the virtualization is so easy to do now that it makes it very feasible to have something that can be a standby as long as you have a reasonable restore point to,
1: to start from. Yep. All right. And, well, you know, sometimes you can actually have it to the point where, you know, every, you know, if you do your backups, uh, your last full backup on every uh, Sunday or something, then on Monday you could do a restore of it to Mm -hmm. a virtual machine Mm -hmm. so that if something happens on Thursday, you Mm -hmm. just have to do the incrementals to walk forward that virtual machine forward to uh, Thursday morning or whatever, and then you have your thing ready to go. So you've even done, you know, the big part of the restore that takes a long time proactively.
0: You know, I think really what you, it's funny because what you're saying is, is so critical like what you just said is like sort of the key to like successful disaster recovery in one sentence you just essentially gave that's the number one line that's the punchline for disaster recovery really is have a virtual machine ready to go have your data backups and then just get your deltas in between when that virtual machine was most recently snapshotted you know from whatever state that's in to the difference of when the machine the hot machine died and you're up and ready to go and
1: basically disaster recovery has three factors Delta T, how much data can you afford to lose? So that's ah. how often do you have to run your backup? Okay. Right? If you only do a backup every night, uh, what happens if your system crashes at 4 p.m.? Everything you did that day is gone. So maybe you need to run a backup at lunchtime as well. Um, so that's, yes. How often do you take your backups, which dictates how much data you will lose because it's not covered by your backups, right? Uh, then you have how uh, your Delta R. How long is it going to take you to get back up? right uh you know if if you have to restore terabytes of information yeah. are you gonna be able to do you that only have 100 megabit internet yeah. how's that gonna work for you and it's going to is oh uh we can restore all your files if our server dies but it will take us <laughs> 27 days yeah we'll be back we'll be in a month see you
0: later now. everybody yeah uh, thanks for doing business with us come back in a month when we open the doors again
1: yeah uh and, and you know those are the types of things you have to consider yeah, there's a third one, and I know it, but I can't remember it off the top of my
0: head. <laughs> that was only two. I felt like three to me. I know the yeah. three. I'll, I bet you I could Google it
1: out. Yeah, it's uh, how long between your backups? How long it takes to restore? And I have it here somewhere. How current?
0: The, how current? The three strategies of disaster recovery sites. Yes. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Oh, the hot site, the cold site, and the warm site. No, that's not it. There's three yep. strategies to a lot of things, Alan. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Pre-disaster. i wrote an article on it, and I'm just trying to find it now.
0: <laughs> you know, uh, you have preventative, detective, and corrective also. Yeah, yes. yeah. Uh, ah, there
1: it is.
0: When we were uh, when we were setting up VMware ESX, our specific mm-hmm. one of the specific things we deployed VMware up at both the production site and the hot site was so that way we would have minimal differences between the production environments. And uh, so we we actually made the choice to even though we had some physical hardware in place, we replaced some of that physical hardware with virtual servers simply to make the transition between the hot site and the disaster site. Even easier, because we didn't essentially want to have this massive like conversion of, well, all of these Windows boxes were set up for physical hardware, and now we have to get all of their systems, all of their software working on completely different sets of drivers and hardware and all of this that's untested. It hurts your
1: brain sometimes. Yeah,
0: and so we just avoided the whole thing by putting the production and the backup systems both in virtualized environments, and uh, then that just made it essentially production and, and, and backup were identical.
1: It was really cool right so yeah there's the recovery point objective which is the time difference between your most recent backup and when the data loss happens your recovery time objective which is how long uh it takes you to get back up and that's what one? she said
0: <laughs> <laughs> sorry yeah I just, you ah, said it twice yes. and I, I didn't say it the first time but i didn't have the uh, willpower to uh, not do it again i tried I checked the uh, Wikipedia there, Alan, but uh, I didn't find anything. Well, yeah. I could, you know what I could do? I'll do, a, I'll do a Ting spot while you look for it. How about that? Okay. I'll do, I'll do So that'll, uh, that'll give you some time to look for your old articles. So I'll mention yes. our friends over at Ting because this is a great chance to go check them out. Go to techsnap.ting.com. That supports the TechSnap program, and it'll get you a $25 discount off your first Ting device. That's not bad. Think about that. If you already have a Ting-compatible device, and there are more and more of them all the time, then you're going to get a $25 service credit. Why Ting? Well, Ting is mobile that truly makes Sense. It's been my mobile service provider for uh, more than two years, two years and a few months, and it's simple and straightforward. It's a flat $6 for your line, so you can have as many phones as you want. I've got uh, my Nexus 5 right here, uh, and I've got an HCC One and an iPhone 5, $6 for each line. And then it's just the individual usage of those phones that you actually pay for. It's really straightforward. And uh, Ting just updated their Android app to make it even better. So I've got the management of my Ting account right here on my Android app. I love that a lot because I can check in on the other lines and see what Rikai's been up to. I kid. Uh, it's actually, he's like the, the cheapest one out of all of us. But I can see right now that I've used 109 minutes on my uh, Nexus 5 uh, for this billing period. Um, and my billing period ends on April 2nd. All this information is right here. I can set up push notifications. It really allows me to manage my Ting account in a very straightforward way. All of this functionality is even better on their awesome website. They have an incredible dashboard where you can manage your Ting account. And if you need any kind of customer service, guess what? Ting has no hold customer service. So despite the awesome tools they give available to you for free, just part of your service, you can also call them, 1-855-TING-FTW, anytime between 8 a.m. or 8 p.m. That's East Coast time. That's Alan's time. Yeah, and then a real human will answer the phone and uh, help you out. So go to techsnap.ting to get started. And when you're there, why not try out their savings calculator? Click that savings calculator. It starts there right there at the page. You see it when you get there. And say, how much would you save? And you just put in your current bill usage. I'm kind of remembering back here because it's been a couple of years. but uh, So so this month I'm using... this month I'm using 109 minutes exactly. But let's say I had a heavy month, like uh, April is going to be a really heavy month for LinuxFest Northwest. Uh, in fact, mm-hmm. 109 is, is a lot of minutes for me. Uh, so I, I put 300 minutes into the savings calculator. And you can do the same. Just go put your current usage into the savings calculator. All of my messages come over Telegram or Hangouts. I literally, let's see, right now I've gotten, uh, so I can just tell you how many text messages I've gotten. I've actually gotten zero text messages this month, but I put two in there. So let's just say I got two text messages, just in case, but I've gotten zero. Uh, and then uh, I can say how many megabytes I'd use. Well, I've used 800 megabytes right now, but to go big, I put two gigabytes because I'm, you know, I'm kind of figuring I'm taking what I do plus what you guys do because I do a lot of Wi-Fi. And if you use a lot of Wi-Fi, if you're savvy about your data usage, the savings you can have on Ting is freaking nuts. But I'm going to put two gigs in here just so that way we, we kind of have a baseline. I say use about two gigs. And I put my bill before taxes, $149.99, right? Now, if I switch to Ting and I switch from one of the common carriers to Ting, and this is about what I use, when I switch over to Ting, it's going to calculate the savings right there. I would save 2471 In fact, that's actually what I am saving. I've saved about that much money in the last two years by switching to Ting. That's the difference Ting makes by paying for what you use. They have no contracts. You buy your device outright, so that way they're not tricking you to prorate the price throughout the plan, so that way you're saving immediately because you own the device. It's unlocked. It's yours. Like, your computer is yours. Your device is yours. You go to techsnap.ting.com to get started. It's the best mobile service out there now. they got CDMA and GSM. It's a really good company. They're owned by two cows. You guys know they're great. They've been on the Internet for years, and and they really have fantastic customer service. And uh, I'm really, really thrilled with the GSM service I have on my Nexus 5 uh, I, don't know, I don't have the feed to you Alan but I got a Seattle wood back case on my Nexus 5 it's crazy cool mm.
1: it, no, Alan it's cool It's cool. I and just wish I didn't have to pay for a gigabyte of bandwidth on my phone every month when I usually use less than 100 megabytes
0: you know I have an extra ting sim we could just pop it in your Nexus 6 when you're down here mm. and you could just use my, my, my extra line uh, you know, because the sins are like $9, so I just have one, and you can just pop it in there, and I'll just – if I need another one, I'll just pick one up. TechSnap.ting.com, and a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. So, Alan, did you find that third uh, criteria? It
1: though? turns out there is one. I was mistaken.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh it's only two?
1: It's just the two, yes. <laughs> yep. That's recovery crazy. point objective mm-hmm. and recovery – time
0: objective <laughs> i think that's my favorite moment in textnet history then right there yeah yep. okay okay very good alan very good well then why don't uh, we just uh, sort of slide right into this flash bug from 2011 that's still going strong that doesn't sound yeah. that's that's so shocking i'm shocked
1: <laughs> ah well the interesting thing with this one is is because uh the patch onus was not on the user but the developer oh. uh so yes there was CVE 2011 uh 2461, which as it suggests means it came out in late 2011. Uh, so it was an, a kind of interesting flash bug. Unlike a typical flash bug, the problem wasn't in the Adobe Flash player that you use to, uh, you know, in your browser, but actually in the Adobe Flex SDK used by developers to make the flash files. Uh, so what that meant was to solve this bug, developers had to take their uh, Project where they had made a Flash file, yeah. and recompile it with the newer version of the Adobe SDK. And if you just had an old Flash the Swift file, file, was vulnerable. Jesus, Alan, that's going to you know, be
0: thousands of Swift files. I mean, that's going to be yes. maybe
1: millions. And you know, some places, you know, you paid a developer to build it, and you got the Swift file, and you and you it don't works. Have the Why flash would you ever change it? it? Oh my God. Right, gosh. and you don't necessarily have the source to patch it. So Adobe made a tool that allows you to check a Swift file to see if it needs it, and if it does, it can patch the Swift file without you having to, you know. Had the source code, use Adobe Flex to recompile it, and so on. Respect. Uh, And that's been out since November of 2011. Ah. Turns out nobody bothered.
0: (laughs) Surprise, surprise, right, Alan? (laughs)
1: Uh, So the way this one worked is it could do a uh, single origin policy bypass. So uh, when Adobe tried to, in Flex, make it so that you could um, have external language modules and load them in so that you could make your app, you know, load in a French version of all translation of all the buttons and so on. Uh, it didn't properly respect the single origin policy stuff. Uh, so you could basically get it to load a malicious thing. Or the other way around on a malicious site, you could embed right, something right, in to make it load right. the real Swift yeah. from somewhere else and trick the user.
0: Interesting. Huh. Yeah, so uh, I never even yeah. thought that a Flash vulnerability could be introduced by the time the SWF file was compiled, but I guess that makes a lot of sense. Yeah,
1: basically the fix for it, I'm not sure why they didn't add some enforcement to make it not work in the Flash player, but their solution was to fix it in the way they compiled the Swift file, and it turns out a lot of people are still pushing old Swift files around. Of course around.
0: they are. Why wouldn't Why would they? Why, wouldn't ah. they? Why, why, yeah. why spend the money if it still works?
1: Well, and I imagine most of them are just not... You know, aware of the problem necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, the parti- uh, the particular, uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, the vulnerable Flex applications have to be recompiled or patched. Even with the most recent Flash Player, as of like today, uh, vulnerable Flex applications can be exploited. As long as the Swift file was compiled with a vulnerable uh, Flash SDK, attackers uh, can still use this vulnerability against the latest web browsers and Flash plugins. Hmm. So the other interesting thing is, I wonder if how many people are still using a vulnerable version of the Flex SDK because yeah, right? they just didn't know to update.
0: Well, and to be honest, the Adobe software is not cheap, so a lot of people are not all that
1: incentivized to update. Well, the Flex SDK is the open source free one. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, it's it's not the Adobe Flash thing where you had to buy. Okay, it that's to what use I was it. thinking of is the big yeah. Flash. No, thing. this is the, this is the free one, mm-hmm. and so you know another reason why people don't update it, I suppose. But yeah. Uh, so researchers at Nibblesec ran into a problem, and they were investigating the, uh, the single origin policy bypass. And they're like, oh, we found this exploit. And they're like, oh, turns out we're not the first people to find it. There's been a CVE since 2011. Womp womp. It's like, uh, okay, it's fixed. But, oh, the fi- Oh, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so then they wrote a tool to scan the internet and find these Swift files. And they just pointed at, like, the top Alexa sites and so on. <laughs> and they started oh, finding no. that there were a lot of sites that were still running these bad Swift files.
0: I'm shocked, Alan. I'm shocked.
1: And so they presented their findings at Trooper 2015, which is a conference, I'm guessing, about security. That's kind of a weird name for a conference, but anyway. I'm down with it. Uh, they said during their scan, they found that many sites still host uh, vulnerable Flash applications, including Google, Yahoo, Adobe, Salesforce, and more. Uh, it wasn't clear with if I don't know that Google hosts that many Swift files that would be vulnerable, although if you include like the Google Advertising Network, where people can mm-hmm. upload a Swift file and Google will host it, that I'm sure contains lots of them. Yeah. Uh, But they say the single origin policy prevents scripting content loaded from one website, the origin, from affecting the content on another website. For example, a script hosted on website X that's loaded by website Y in an iframe should not be able to read sensitive content about the site's visitors from, you know, like their authentication cookies. Neither should website Y be able to obtain information about users from website X uh, by simply loading a resource from it. So, for example, if you embed uh, a YouTube video on your site, then your site shouldn't be able to read the user's Google cookie. Right. Uh, that is then logged into Facebook. Which is just a big like problem. the other way around, if you uh, you know use the Google-hosted jQuery on your website, the code f- that runs from there shouldn't be able to uh, read information and send it back to Google, and so on. Uh, but it said, without this mechanism in place, any malicious site could load, for example, Gmail uh, in a hidden iframe. And then because you're logged in, Google will just show your Google inbox uh, in this iframe that you're not seeing. And then JavaScript in the parent site that uh, has Google in an iframe could reach in with JavaScript and steal your cookie. And now the bad guy has your Google cookie and can pretend to be you. Uh, So we have the same origin policy that prevents uh, scripts that aren't from the same site from interacting to prevent that kind of theft. Uh, But it seems... That, hmm. you know, with this Flash exploit, you could possibly do that. And the other one they could do is um, load a Flash thing, of a, a valid Flash thing that's vulnerable to this exploit from somewhere and then change all the messages in it using the translation thing, that the original feature that Adobe was trying to build here. Yeah, yeah. So I could change all the buttons on the application to say things. <laughs> so if there's one that says, you know, I, I want to confirm this thing where I'm going to do something, like transfer money or something, I could label that button cancel, and the other the cancel button would say transfer the money, right? Or something. It's like, so you want to transfer all your money? It's like cancel, cancel, and you just click accept because they changed the text on the button.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so this one's interesting, but uh, they wrote a little scanner, uh, and uh, hopefully, and they've notified Google and other people, and hopefully we'll see uh, right. a lot fewer of these Swift files floating around.
0: Hmm. You know.
1: But uh, you should th- read the articles because they they're got some interesting coverage, and they have all their slides from the conference as well.
0: Just Yeah, I, sh- I was showing a couple in the video version. Uh, just as you think it's safe to turn Flash back on, load Java up on all your rigs, something like that comes along, Alan, and ruins your day.
1: I don't know if anybody ever thought it was safe to load Java back up. No? There's a whole oh. slew of Java things. We just didn't cover them recently.
0: Oh Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, well, any other thoughts on that?
1: Uh, no. that's pretty
0: Well, then let me rock your face with a little knowledge about iX Systems. Go over to iXsystems.com slash TechSnap. Sponsors of the TechSnap program. And they build rigs powered by those awesome Intel Xeon processors that just keep getting better. They have a really great process where you can go and tell them, this is what I want. This is my goal. This is the workload I'll be looking at. And these are the challenges we're facing. They'll work with you not to try to trick you into buying something you don't need, but to build you the exact solution you need. And it really is a very great experience once you get through with it. They have yeah. a real white glove process to it. I love
1: it a lot. Well, it's not just that. It's that the people you're talking to actually know what yes. Linux is and how it works and what BSD is and, right. and you know, what ZFS is and, and you know, they, they know the kind of things you're actually dealing with. Well, and right? they'll be they able know, to
0: answer, like, is this a good scenario for a software RAID or a hardware RAID controller? Here's the workload I'll be looking at. And it's at. like,
1: yeah, so I'm trying to run VMware and I want this to be my iSCSI server for it and, you know, I'm going to want you know, at least this many IOPS. And they're like, ah, well, for that case, you have to, t- you you know, you want this kind of SSD for the, the Zill or whatever, and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, the biggest difference is they know what they're talking about. Yeah. And that, that and boy, does so that, does, not difference. only does
0: that, not, I mean, obviously that pays off in the purchasing process. So that way you know you're getting the right solution that's going to last a long time, which means you're going to get long-term value out of it. That's obvious. There's value there. But where if that really pays off, what Alan's talking about is down the road. Like, when you have a problem where, in a typical scenario, you get bounced between software vendor and hardware vendor, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. IX systems, because they truly understand what you're talking about. In fact, the people who work for IX systems are obviously, obviously and often some of the premier experts in that field. They work for yeah. IX. So, you're not going to get that bounce around. You're going to get people that truly understand their product and be able to answer your questions. And if it's hardware-related, they're going to be able to solve that without any delay. It's, they yep. really have a great reputation. You can see why. Get started by going to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. You can download their ultimate guide to buying a new server for open source. It's 11 key traits you can demand from your provider. You just got to get them. Say, so if we're going to do business with you, these are what I need to know from you. Download that. Read that. It's something they had put together. They're not going to spam you. It's a white paper they put together to help you grease the wheels up the chain if you need to. at your organization. Yep. We've done this a long time. We can recommend them fully. ixsystems is awesome. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And you know what? Going to be at Linux Fest.
1: Yep, and usually every other Linux yeah. event are yeah. there. Yeah, I know, but uh, I'm excited about Linux. Even, even Linux users love the free NAS.
0: <laughs> That's very true. That is very true. Uh, speaking of uh, the things that the Linux users love, uh, BSD Now, episode 82,
1: is yep. out, SSL in the wild. Nice yes. one, Alan. Uh, We interview a not-a-developer person who has been helping uh, make uh, every Application in the FreeBSD Ports Tree work with LibreSSL, the replacement for OpenSSL. Oh, very interesting. And uh, he kind of talks a little bit about how even if you're not a developer, you can still help. Cool. Episode 82, the BSD Now Show is out, and Alan co-hosts that with
0: Chris Moore from PCBSD. And it's about the halfway point in the TechSnap program, so a good spot to yep. go grab that HD version of the BSD Now program. That's, I'm glad you guys are staying on top of that story. Yes. That's a good one to stay on top of. And it's a good kind of companion episode to a lot of things we cover in TechSnap, too. Yep, BSD Now, episode 80. I think, you know, by the way, Alan, that's a good luck number, too, 82. 82 is good luck. Don't know why. I've been okay. told that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. All right, Alan. Well, with the news all done, guess what? That means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting to thread in our subreddit over at techsnap.redit.com. And our first email this week comes in from Thor, <laughs> who says, uh, Hi, my friend Oscar and I study electronics together and have found a common interest in technology, networking, and Linux. I introduced them to both Linux and Jupiter Broadcasting a few years ago and have learned a lot. Currently, we are considering building a server at each of our places and syncing our data to each other as backup. We want to be able to have an own cloud installation running on top of FreeNAS. We want to be able to encrypt before sending. I don't necessarily want them to have pictures of my girlfriend. So the data should be encrypted while on on their system, too. So we would like to know how. How can we back up our data in a safe, secure way to each other using FreeNAS? Should I be looking into ZFS Send and Receive? That's over the internet. Thanks from Norway, Oscar. And
1: Thor. Uh, Oscar, Eric, and Thor, yes.
0: Yes. Oh, yeah, Uh, Eric, too. Sorry, Eric.
1: Yes. Uh, well, he didn't mention Eric earlier, and it was interesting because he said them when he because he was referring to Eric too. Anyway, um, so yes, uh, ZFS send and receive is good. The problem is that the files will be unencrypted. Um, it's kind of a interesting problem. Um, there is PEFS, P-E-F-S, uh, which we've talked a little bit about on uh, BSD now before. Uh, which allows you to basically, uh, it's encryption on top of the file system instead of under the file system. Uh, normally, the way you do encryption on FreeBSD is with Gelly, and basically that's uh, encrypting the whole hard drive. And so you have your file system, it writes blocks to the hard drive, and then they get encrypted and written down. And then, so the file system doesn't know about the encryption. And the problem with that one is when you do the ZFS and receive, the other side has your unencrypted files. Mm. So with PEFs, it goes over top of the file system. So your files Ooh. on the uh, on ZFS get named random things, and when you try to open them, they contain gibberish. And then if you mount it uh, with the decryption key, then you get the uh, readable text. I'm not sure how easy it is to do that on a free NAS, though.
2: Okay. Okay.
1: Um And then the other way of doing it is also complicated. Um, He he
0: could be. Thor may be overthinking this a bit, too, because uh, I am not an expert on this. But I do know that OwnCloud has built in not only transfer encryption, but also file system level encryption that is specifically designed so that if it is on a remote OwnCloud server, it does not decrypt.
1: Uh, I don't know uh, what features OwnCloud might have for that. Obviously, yes, if you're doing own cloud over SSL, then you're getting the encryption there. But yeah. if it has some storage encryption option, that seems so like So
0: what I help. did is there's two articles, I, and including one that's a how-to on the configuration setup. I linked both of those in the show notes for him. And uh, you can uh, you can set up a key, and then only the own cloud server that has the key can decrypt them. And I'm, if you're looking at the video version right now, I'm showing you some screenshots of that. Uh, so, yeah, the one thing to keep in mind is files in your trash bin will not be encrypted. Image thumbnails from the gallery app are not encrypted. Previews from the files app are not encrypted. And the search index is not encrypted. So, and any third-party app data is not encrypted. As long, so your photos would be encrypted. If you didn't view them in the gallery app, then their thumbnails would not be encrypted. So there are some limitations right. there to keep that in mind. Yeah. But it's built in.
1: Yeah, uh, that does seem like a nice solution. Uh, yeah, there's a better one, but it's overly complicated, and Chris and I are working on it.
0: Oh, Nice. All right, Alan. Uh, let's see if we can't solve a networking issue here. Uh, let's see. Did I get his name? Yeah, and just B. <clears throat> B writes in, I have a small home network, and I'm seeing some strange behavior on it, so I'm hoping you guys can help. I have a foundry, Fastatron. I like that name instead. It's not really the it's name. Fast Iron. Yeah. And it uh, has 48 ports, uh, 10, 100 copper, eight ports of GigE fiber, and eight ports of GigE copper. I have four Linux boxes plugged into the GigE copper ports, and they work fine. I put the free NAS box on the network, and the board it has is a real technique. When I plug that into the gig ports of the Switch, I don't get Link on either end. The Link light flashes on and off every second on the Switch port, but nothing ever happens on the free NIC. I've recently upgraded the board to a Super Micro Intel, uh, Nick and neither port gets the link on the gig ports. It has the same behavior on the Realtek NICs. Note that both the Realtek and Intel NICs run perfectly fine on the 10100 ports on the same switch. I have, a, I have switched cables and ports. In fact, I took the cable and the port from one that was working on one of the other Linux boxes, plugged that in the NAS box, and got no link. I thought the problem might be on the switch side, but I ran IP perf between the two of the Linux boxes, and I got good performance. While I had the NAS box plugged into a gig port, I tried setting it to manually 1000 base TX, full duplex, uh, but I still didn't get a link light. Is there something I need to configure on a free NAS box to get gig E? Or maybe, Alan, is there some tools he could use to troubleshoot more?
1: Um, In general, uh, if the switch isn't set to auto-config, like when you talked about manually setting it, although I think he's manually set the NAS box... um, in, yeah, if one of the two, if both sides are not set to auto config you have to manually configure both of them to be exactly the same. So uh, that would involve, you know, running ifconfig em zero or igb zero uh, media, you know, one thousand base tx or whatever uh, to get it to both to be the same as the switch, and then you will get your link light. Is there a uh, software state? If the switch is set to auto. Like it should be, then the auto on the FreeBSD and it should just work.
0: And 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 if the NIC was some for some reason t- disabled software wise, would that would that prevent the link light from turning on? Like in FreeBSD, can you turn off a NIC and it actually is like off? You can off? down
1: a NIC, but I don't think that actually kills the link. Right? Because I don't think that kills the link. Is
0: unless I'm mistaken, wouldn't the link be an the link light be an electrical? Response Almost. to the
1: Ethernet connection in most cases, like um, yes, but it does. It actually well, it's a response to the carrier signal. Yeah, okay. And so it is to powered get the by the NIC, signal. Then. The two sides have to agree on the the Ethernet. Protocol. So then it is the Nix
0: ROM software that's turning that light on.
1: Yes. Yeah. So yeah, maybe. If Although on. there's actually on the Intel Nix, there's support in FreeBSD uh, via the LED driver to actually play with the lights inside the operating <laughs> cool. system and make them speak Morse code.
0: And you know what? That's <laughs> actually useful when you're trying to find a server in a rack. I would actually yep. use that.
1: Although, uh, most Super Microboards yes. have the UID low, I, Yeah, both Yeah, the identified light. light yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But still. Uh, the other system be was built for hard drive, but most of the controllers light. don't support it. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, but generally, yeah, um, usually if you get both sides set to auto, it should just work. Uh, but... Um, if you force it, you have to force it on both sides as well. I wonder if you could try another gigabit switch. Yeah, I, I've never had a problem, especially with Intel Mix. Yeah, uh, that was when I've, he... I've, I've, that's I've what, done everything from like an old TrendNet to a new TP-Link to like some high-end Ciscos and NetGears without any ever having any problems. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, good luck. But yeah, That is a, an old, strange switch, and the port might just be set... Hard set to gigabit or something. Yeah, if you are gonna uh, auto.
0: yeah. So what Alan's saying is, if you're gonna manually set it, manually set it on both ends, not just one end. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, okay. Although the easiest way is, is try to have both sides set to auto and yeah. it just works better. I, th- I think. it's uh, But started. you can get really really strange behavior by having one the client set to a, a specific one and the switch set to auto, Especially where you'll have link one. for a second and then drop it and have link and then mm-hmm. drop it and have link and drop it. And Maybe that's what he's yeah, seeing. Maybe seeing carrier, carrier
0: signal for a second. I don't know. Maybe that's it. A-
1: yeah. It's uh, hard to say, but you shouldn't be having that much trouble, honestly. Uh, So hopefully you can get that sorted. uh, And let us know what happens. uh, Yeah, definitely let us know what happens. But yeah, you should uh, be able to force it uh, to gigabit if your Switch is stuck, forced to it or something weird.
0: Okay. Nathan writes in uh, with additional SSH tunneling considerations. I like this. There's a follow-up. He says, hey, Chris, not a long listener of Last and Linux Unplugged, and I just started listening to TechSnap. So we need to get more guys like Nathan that have been listening to those other shows and still haven't tried. We're 200 in it. We're 207 in. Like, time to check it out. <laughs> I think it's time. Yeah, so yeah, yeah at least you got a nice back catalog to watch. In last week's episode, a listener wrote in asking about tunneling web traffic via SSH. It's probably worth mentioning that by default, Firefox will resolve DNS on the local client when connecting through a SOX proxy. Yes, it is worth mentioning that. Thank you. If you're, really going to for, if you're really going to be anonymous, this is not good. I agree. Fortunately, there is a setting which you can access via the About Config page in Firefox to enable DNS resolution through your SOX proxy. And he links that to us. If you are curious out there in the audience and want to read his email, he has a link in his email. He said, I would also highly recommend a nifty little plugin called Foxy Proxy which I've heard of before. You can get it at gitproxyproxy.org. It's available for Firefox, Chrome, and Internet Explorer and has a ton of features such as enabling DNS resolution through your proxy, but that only works on Firefox, host switching between proxies or no proxy, URL pattern matching for proxy switching, etc. I like that. Uh, I've been using it for several years now, and it's really great. Keep up the great work. Nathan, boy, you do that in conjunction with your SSH tunnel, and that's a slick setup. Foxy proxy. Yeah,
1: so you could be like, I want certain traffic to go over the SSH channel and certain to not, yeah. and then certain other traffic, you know, work stuff needs to go over a different SSH yeah. tunnel
0: Yeah, because I don't want like all my internet stuff to try to go over the tunnel or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. I or, don't want
1: all the internet stuff going over the work tunnel. Uh, so I want most of my traffic to just go normally. But the, you know, Netflix, I need to bounce off a US <laughs> server, and work, I need to bounce off over here. Exactly. Then, yeah. Yep. All right, so... Uh, We covered some very interesting things you can do with SSH on BSD Now. Uh, We have uh, chaining. So, uh, for example, actually SSHing through two or three hosts to eventually get somewhere. Uh, The example we had for that is, you know, my file server at home isn't actually directly connected to the internet. So if I want to SSH to it, what I actually have to do is SSH to my router and then SSH from that into my file server. Hmm. Right? Or if you're at work, it could be even extra layers, Right? Uh, and so we show how you can actually create an SSH alias that'll do all the steps at once for you with your different SSH keys, and get you in. I like. That. Uh, and we've also covered a bunch of other cool stuff about tunneling and weird things you can do with SSH.
0: Cool, Alan. Really cool. All right, our our last one just made me smile. It's the only reason I put it in the feedback segment. But it came in from Ant Man eighty nine sixty nine. In fact, as we are recording, the image has been pulled down or it's gone or whatever. But. You know, we,
1: we kind of touched on the Primera hack, the breach. We just kind of mentioned it. and uh, Yeah, uh, basically it was another healthcare one. Yeah. Uh, the big one. The reason why people in our industry cared is because the healthcare company that Google, uh, Amazon, and a bunch of other internet companies use. Yeah.
0: Well, guess what? Uh, Ant-Man pu- uh, sends along. He got a letter in the mail saying he's going to get free Experian coverage now as for a year thanks to the Primera hack. And he included a shot, which isn't working right now, but I love it. Like it's just like the audience, like a joke among the audience now, and it's like we all get it's like oh yeah, of course you're gonna get you're gonna get free experience. Yeah, okay, thanks. That makes everything better.
1: <laughs> he sends it in. When, when are we gonna start seeing well, like the second company that has this product, and, and it's like the off brand experience, right? And it's actually slightly worse. Yeah, and then companies start giving that out instead. And yeah, people are like, oh, but you can't even. You know, pay the extra for real experience. Right.
0: Oh, man, that you know that's going to happen. That's ridiculous. All right, well, we'd love to get your feedback. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. Click the contact link, and then you just choose TechSnap from the drop-down, or just email us directly, techsnap at com, or my favorite, com. Then you engage with the whole dang community, plus it gets in front of my face a little bit easier because I go there a couple times uh, a week or a day.
1: I check the inbox like before all the right, show. It's where you go when you're looking for the stuff about the show specifically. So.
0: Exactly. Whereas I check the inbox like, well, it's about time to start texting. I better go read the email. <laughs> so, you know, it gets like, in front of me a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's up to you, though. I leave it in your capable hands, audience. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the text TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup for stories just didn't quite fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to read up on after the show. And a lot of these links came from our incredible subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. And our first one's a real head shaker. Get your face and your palm ready for this one, ladies and gentlemen, because as Radio Shack is going out of business, well, they've got to make money somehow, so they're going to sell your data. Man, this chaps my butt.
1: Yeah, well, I guess it was, you know, how many years was Radio Shack asking all those questions every time you went to buy something?
0: Yes. Now this is why you know not to answer that crap. You're right. Yes. it always fill all that junk out. Yeah. And it's uh,
1: 170 and it's like, million so customers. So we have a privacy policy. You're all protected. We won't sell the data. And then, oh, well, we're going out of business now. So our thing doesn't actually and have any. In Radio you know. Shack's defense. I can't believe I just said that. But in Radio
0: Shack's <laughs> defense, it. Is likely the debitors and I believe Ars Technica touches on this, it is likely the debitors that are saying, Well, you're you filed for bankruptcy and this is one of your most valuable assets. So you have to make money on that. That's like like that might be the situation they're in. You follow what I'm saying?
1: Right. Uh, but basically because their company is ceasing to exist, their privacy policy has no power anymore. And it, it really raises the question, yes what happens uh to random cloud providers when you put all your files up there and they go out of business. And you know, Sometimes it's just your files disappear, but sometimes it's like, oh, well, somebody can just buy all of your files. And you just nailed it.
0: Or or maybe they just buy, not even your files, maybe they just buy all of your metadata, all of the yep. IPs you ever accessed from, all the date and times you ever logged in, all of the computers and devices you ever used. That is valuable information. That's extremely valuable yep. information for marketing. Um, so, I, yeah, that's a really big topic to think about.
1: Hey, Alan, wouldn't be a roundup without a Krebs article. That's our next roundup story. You want to take this one? Sure. Uh, so you remember we mentioned that... Uh, Hilton Honors Reward Program, where they're giving you a thousand points for changing your password? Yes. Well, some security researchers were playing with it, and they found that if they changed some of the fields in the HTML, when they clicked the link or or submitted the form or whatever, they could get access to anybody's account just by knowing the account number. (sighs)
2: Uh,
1: And so, basically, they could just sit there and guess account numbers, and uh, eventually... Uh, they contacted Krebs about it, and Krebs is like, all right, well, here's my account number, and they sent him screenshots of lo- being logged into his account, and he's like, oh, okay.
0: <laughs> I love Krebs. You know what? That's
1: great. Way to take one for the team, too. Yeah. Oh, man. I obviously trusted the researchers a little bit to do that, but or just only had an account that didn't have any money or anything in it. But gives uh, me heart palpitations just thinking about it, Alan. Yeah. Uh, th- there was some kind of uh, chiding going on in the um, – um, Comment thread because at the top of the article they refer to it as a cross-site request forgery uh, because someone could put the form somewhere else and submit it but uh, it's more of a insecure direct object reference where basically uh, by switching the ID passed in a field in the form you could make it load the wrong data that you're not supposed to have access to.
2: Hmm.
1: So yeah but uh After they got the call from Krebs a couple hours later, the website, uh, well, almost immediately, the website stopped offering password resets, and now it's back to normal, and the bug is fixed. You know,
0: they were just trying to do a good thing, get you to change your password, Alan.
1: They're just trying to do a good thing. Well, we were, when I first saw the headline, I was like, ah, so that's why they were doing the password reset thing. Right. So it it seemed like there was something that provoked them them to do the password reset, and then they just... Because they were doing it in such a hurry, they made a mistake. And, yeah, right. Little sloppy coding.
0: Yeah. Hey, Alan. Uh, don't worry. Don't freak out. But there was a squid bug in Red Hat that when you restarted, it performed an R, uh, rf dash force
1: recursively on slash root. Uh, yeah. It is a bug that was fixed. Star, yes. Yeah. Uh, it's, funny oh, var, it's the exact it was var, same bug has oh, okay. been in Steam before, right? The Steam client. Yes, had this you're problem. right.
0: You're right. It was. It, it was, was exactly similar. the same problem. Yeah. Well, I think uh, there was you know, an, like, an environment
1: uh, variable doesn't get set. And instead of deleting everything in the squid directory, it deleted everything in every directory. Uh, the important thing is for the Red Hat one, this was in a beta version of uh, Red Hat, like 6.7, that's not actually out yet. So it didn't clobber a lot of people or, you know, nobody should have been using this in production. Uh, so it didn't clobber any production, but uh, it's a good thing they found the Problem. yeah <laughs> it really been... seems like uh there's got to be a better way to write the shell script to deal with this <laughs> uh than to just what what have the prefix as a an environment variable that could be empty
0: what what you don't want to delete uh, your entire slash bar
1: command what? and
0: <laughs> oh no this next one's gonna get me all hot and bothered why healthcare tech is still so bad yep what's this one about Alan?
1: uh is a new york times article uh friend linked to it because his uh Wife is a nurse and deals with it. But uh, basically, they saw an ad uh, for a doctor, uh, up and, it, and they're talking about how, you know, at our hospital, we have state of the art operating rooms and dazzling uh, radiology equipment and a lovely suburban location. And, uh, but, and then in bold at the bottom, it's like, and we have no electronic medical records. Hmm. And uh, it was like, why is that a selling point? And then they go on to talk about how bad some of the stuff is, uh, you know, and. You can you can imagine a bunch of doctors trying to use technology and so I, on. I, I had um, doctors
0: as clients. I can very much imagine yeah. it.
1: And it says, you know, if the only negative effect of uh, healthcare computerization was grumpy doctors, we could probably muddle through. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's worse. Uh, you know, the one guy described going to his doctor that now had electronic medical records. And so you're in the patient care room or whatever, and you're having the little, you know, the doctor always asks you that bunch of questions. So every time you answer a question, he starts typing it into the computer. And it's like, well, that's, you know, if you're trying to have a conversation with someone and they're typing on the computer, that's usually considered pretty rude, right? So, you know, uh, although I'm not sure how it's much different than them writing it on their little chart, right? But anyway, uh, there's some stuff like that. But also, uh, at a hospital in uh, 2013, there was uh, an instance where a teenager was giving a uh, 39 times... Uh, overdose of an uh, oh, antibiotic that almost killed him oh, man. Uh, because of a glitch. Uh, the doctor failed to recognize that when he was filling out uh, how much to give the the patient, it, the field was in milligrams per kilogram. You gotta be kidding! Instead, me. Of, so based on the patient's weight rather than just a flat number of milligrams. You gotta be kidding me! And uh, so the software has systems for this where it will send an alert, being like, "Hey, that seems unusually high" or something, but. You know, lots of people were sent that alert, but nobody actioned on it because they have alert fatigue. Uh, You know, they said uh, they have one case where uh, there were five patients in an intensive care unit. And uh, over the course of uh, some short, uh, oh, in one month, they got 2.5 million alerts. Mm. And so they just ignore all the the alerts and then you have the problem. Of course they do. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's the same with any monitoring system. If it's not tuned properly, then you have this problem of everybody gets uh, too many alerts and then they just ignore all of them. And then, you know, the alert that's supposed to keep you uh, from, you know, giving someone an overdose and causing them to have a seizure and almost die uh, gets ignored.
0: Yeah, boy. So no surprise to us there, Highland.
1: Yeah. And they go on to talk about lots of it and how a lot of it is really bad. Uh, The interesting was uh, I've seen a little bit of this because there was a project at the college when I was consulting uh, years ago about electronic health records. And it was like, there are like eight different standards for for categorizing when something's wrong with somebody. And some of them are more hierarchical than others. So like in some of them, there's one code for somebody who has a broken right leg. And then in some of them, it's more uh broken bone slash leg slash right or something like that right and there's different tiers and, and it's just uh trying to codify all this medical information that's not necessarily because when doctors came up with their classifications and stuff they weren't thinking about how computers would organize it and it very difficult to make doctors start thinking about it in this other way and, and just, it's just like, uh, this is just huge enterprise software that is just never going to be any good, no matter right. what. Yep. It's, it's a little depressing. Like, yeah. It's a little bit of a bummer, but it's the nature yep. of the beast. Uh, uh, I want- but, you know, looking at uh, the bigger, scarier thing is like, look at that school that computerized, and then something goes wrong, yeah. and all of a sudden they can't feed the students lunch.
0: It's a little ridiculous.
1: Yeah, that's what you need at a hospital. Somebody opens an email attachment, crypto locker, oh, and geez, boom, Jeez. you can't give people Jeez. medication.
0: Oh, okay, all right, all right, okay. Can we change? You're really bumming me out. All right, yeah, okay. I, this so this th- there's an SSL story that went around this week. that what it really shows is what kind of happens sometimes when you use Cloudflare in a kind of a non-direct way. Let me, let me explain. Yeah. So Ted Cruz uh, got a lot of crap this week online because uh, his website, uh, which I don't even know what his website is. Yep. Uh, I don't know what his website is. But on his website, oh, tedcruz.org, uh, people discovered that his SSL cert also had things like nigerianprince.com in there, nigerian-prince.com. Well, of course, uh, as people have pointed out, Ted Cruz's website is using Cloudflare, which lumps unrelated domains onto the same HTTPS cert. Alan's talked about this before, including, like, techdirt.com, hosted by Cloudflare. Uh, so that's actually what happened, but it didn't stop the web from blowing up for a little
1: while. That was fun. Yeah. So part of it is, if you don't pay Cloudflare enough to do the SSL for you, then they do this thing where they lump them together and you have this problem. <laughs> uh, but in general, it's like, well, why is Tector using Cloudflare? And why is every why does anybody use Cloudflare? Yeah. It's horrible. Stop using well, it. Well, and why is Ted Cruz using the cheapo service? His wife
0: is a big executive yes. at Goldman Sachs. you think she'd make plenty of money to afford that.
1: Yeah. Uh, hmm. It's it's hard to say. But, yes, it was uh, obviously a, a hilarious headline. Uh, and yeah, so it TechDirt was, jumped on it. Yeah. And the TechDirt had to issue an apology yeah. because they were getting yelled at by everybody. It's like, yeah, well, you know, it's – it's. It was Cloudflare it had nothing to do with Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz wasn't actually. Uh, but just, the fact that the uh, domain he got paired with for the shared certificate was that, Nigerian-Prince.com. That is
0: kind of great on his it?
1: website where he's trying to solicit donations for his pre- uh, presidential campaign. Is That's a whole lot of great. So coincidental and it's- hilarious <laughs> that I I I couldn't help cover the story. I know. Plus, I, I'll take any chance I can to make fun of Cloudflare for being horrible.
0: <laughs> oh, what about Ted Cruz? <laughs> No, all right, Alan. Very good. I, I thank you. I just exactly it was just a good laugh, and that's why we, you yes. know we want to hear. It. All right, so well, let's yes. get serious. Uh,
1: don't use Cloudflare for SSL. Right, and uh, <laughs> don't use Cloudflare for anything. Uh, now, back to real
0: security news. More yes. Uh Tax yeah, fraud, fraud advice, straight up from the scammers. That's got to be the best advice yes. around.
1: <laughs> so over on the forum where the scammers uh, trade stuff about tax fraud, they also have you know what the scammers should do to not get caught. <laughs> And basically, they're insider tips on making sure that, uh, you know, you don't get tax rotted is- and what to do if you do kind of. Gold. This is gold. Very good. Yeah, says, I wanted to share a bit of my uh, results to see if everybody is doing as uh, so bad or is it just me. Uh, Federal this year has been a pain in the ass. I have about 35 applications made for Federal with only two paid refunds. I started early in January on TurboTax and then H&R Block and made about 35 applications on federal and state, and my stats are as follows. Federal, 35 applications with a less than 10% approval rate. Average per return is $2,500. On state, he submitted 35 applications. got 15 approvals uh, with an average return hmm. of 1,600. Uh, states work just uh, as great as last year. Their approval rate is nearly 50%, and processing time is usually no more than 10 to 12 days. Uh, but yes then they talk about uh employer identification numbers 10k filings uh, and uh, I all mean the these guys are the things. experts down these are the experts
0: that's like uh yeah. it's like when you uh, get hacked by like uh somebody who actually does it for a living or uh when you uh talk to a bank robber about ra- robbing a bank <laughs> uh all right So this next one, it's got to be pie in the sky, I'm hoping, or it's going to be the end of us all. But Facebook this week talked about their serious plans. The Aquila drone, you think I'm saying that right, Alan? They're very large. They're very big, solar-powered drones that will beam down Internet access from the sky. From the heavens, you'll get Facebook Internet. They talked about it at the F8 conference. Uh, It was either today or yesterday. Aquila is a drone with a wingspan comparable to a Boeing 767, yet uses lightweight material so it weighs less than a car.
1: Lasers are really point-to-point. Like, are you going to have to track you and shoot a laser directly at you? or Yeah. Uh, like Internet access works for point-to-point. Using so lasers. As, you would have a building here and a building so far away you can't see it to shoot a laser across. it. So you bounce off kind of almost like a satellite using the plane as like a satellite. And I can see that for point-to-point Internet access. You'd have to, to like blanket laser coverage, right? I mean, you just have to be like shooting down... Yeah, but basically, I, I can't, can't see it shooting down a laser to each individual user. No. It would just shoot down to a base receiver units,
0: or and then they would distribute it maybe over Wi-Fi or some sort or of wired connection. Maybe that makes more sense.
1: Or you know, it's getting internet via lasers up to satellites or something, and then distributing it by Wi-Fi or something. I or don't they know. Can
0: put that high up in the sky because
1: it depends how high it is. Sixty thousand to ninety thousand feet. Oh, that's way up there.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's okay. not going to happen, is it? <laughs> it's never going to happen. Uh,
1: it, it definitely seems like people just toying around. But if it does, it, it wouldn't be something you would need that much in the U.S. I don't think. This is more about getting all the Facebook data of all the people in Africa.
0: Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Alan, were you ever a Foundation DB user? I, I know some folks in it's our not community. Open source, work. right?
1: And then there's, you know, it was very popular for building yeah. apps, but it wasn't yeah. open source, and right. it was like, well, what happens? Considering they're a startup, if they just go out of business. Well, guess what? Or in this case, (laughs) they got bought by Apple. So they're doing very well, but everybody who uses them, not so much. Uh, They pulled all the download links off the website and basically they're like, yeah, that's not a thing anymore. It could be inside Apple products only or something, I guess. So Apple didn't want it uh, because it was a popular database that people were using to build apps. They wanted it for some reason i don't
0: really uh know. sometimes apple will take stuff in and reincorporate it into their own products and you never really hear about it again so
1: right so like even then you would think well you would just like open source it and use their version and like apple could keep their version or something or,
0: i wish that was no good. apple
1: hasn't been terrible about things like that they've they've sometimes you know, yeah lots of open source in apple depends
0: sometimes uh yeah, well, I guess not in this case. Hey, this is pretty uh, a pretty competitive move from Amazon. Check this out. They're changing their cloud storage so that way—I hate that word—they're changing their online storage system so that way you can have unlimited photos for eleven ninety nine per year. Unstore unlimited photos,
1: and then you can do unlimited just
0: everything. Just store whatever you well, want. It says everything, but it
1: says uh, infinite number of new and existing photos, videos, yes. files, documents, movies, and music. New ones.
0: So, that's, so you un, un, unlimited new ones as you take them is that how it works. But, uh, uh, but that's Well, still... how
1: unlimited? Because I have like 200 terabytes of video that I could use a remote backup for. <laughs> yeah. And if it costs $5 a month.
0: Well, I, what I'm not 100% clear on is yeah. you may have to pay for the initial storage of like your like, initial storage dump. But then all future ones are unlimited. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I'm not quite sure on the language. But the way I was reading it is it actually looks like fully unlimited. But I like, that seems too good to be true. So now, because the way they store, the way they state this is, uh, they say, um, what do they say? Unlimited photo plan, uh, store infinite numbers of photos in cloud drive without worrying about taking up space on phones, cameras, or other devices. Customers can upload existing collections. Oh, and store all future photos taken. This plan includes five gigabytes of additional storage for videos and other documents and files. So your videos are going to be where they ding you. But if you're just doing photos, it's free.
1: I wonder if I'm sure there's some fine print in there somewhere where it's like you know you can only upload this much data per month.
0: Yeah, maybe they limit it or something. And then unlimited, if
1: sixty nine
0: sixty dollars a year, unlimited storage for everything on, on Amazon.
1: Right, but if it's you know you pay six dollars a year and you can upload five gigabytes a month, and you know, that's yeah, but they might have, they but they might
0: be big enough where they don't have to impose limitations like that either.
1: Yeah, but it, they can't just offer unlimited storage for. Nothing. Maybe they... eventually they would have to change something. Well, and the biggest the problem with these is, is sure it'll be it's sixty dollars for unlimited everything forever for a while, and then eventually you know years down the road it's like oh yes. well you have right. you know two hundred terabytes of stuff built up with this yeah. and now we're changing the
0: well button. and and uh, oh wow well, wow it's taking me right to my photos I'm sure I should probably be careful what I look at there apparently I'm already using it <laughs> uh, wow look at that uh, that's interesting uh, um. Yeah, that's pretty good. I, you, know, you know, the thing, Amazon's trick is they don't ever have to make money. They apparently never make money, so. I don't know. I'll read through the terms of service. We'll see.
1: It's an yeah. interesting idea.
0: All right, Alan, why don't we talk about our next roundup story? Snapchat, it's no doubt killing your family data plan. That's probably true.
1: Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Uh, on uh, BSD Now, we covered a story where they used uh, GORSE, which is actually a program for visualizing uh, source tree history, oh. like your Git or SVN. Oh, I love log. that, yeah. Uh, but they did it for his firewall. Uh, with a PS firewall, yeah, and uh, so it, you know, it would show IP addresses instead of people, and and they found that uh, the cell phone in the house or uh, the the administrator's uh, girlfriend's cell phone was using up a huge amount of data, and I wonder if maybe it was Snapchat.
0: Yeah, because you know it, it constantly is pinging, saying if you're online or not. So that way, the service. Well, knows.
1: apparently, what it's doing with this new feature is downloading huge amounts of data.
0: Really. I do like have a couple s- of
1: gigabytes in three days. Apparently.
0: Snapchat has this new channels feature, too. Wonder if that well, this one
1: is the new discover feature. That's
0: what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so it's just like randomly looking for things that you might like or something and downloading them all.
0: Oh, that's good to know. Better watch
1: out for that. Or something. Hmm. And uh, that also seems like that would just kill battery life and your bandwidth allocation. and... But the biggest thing is it seems to default to doing it even if you're on your cell. Like if, if it was doing it only on Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi yeah. maybe something. Right. But the default seems to be, yeah, I'm going to do gigabytes of downloads over your cell plan.
0: I, uh, I, have, a, uh, I, have, a, I have kind of like a um, maybe grab-it-and-watch-later roundup item for you, Alan. Bruce Schneier I did a talk, and their video just got posted online, and Space Penguin linked it for us. It's called uh, Data and Goliath, the Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World. And uh, so I,
1: Data and Goliath is a book he just published. Yeah. So this is a, just a presentation. So yeah, I bet this is a, a good
0: a talk. Uh, So we'll have that link in the show notes. You can watch it over the weekend if you want there, folks. How cyber attacks can be overlooked in America's most critical sectors.
1: Well, in particular, this one, uh, the headline that got me to look at it was, uh, even now, no one seems to be able to say exactly what is and what is not a cyber incident.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so if we're going to start regulating about, you know, how companies have to report cyber incidents or whatever, or if we're going to cite, you know, there were X cyber incidents against our uh, company this year on our um, um, what's the regulator? SEC filings, yes. then uh, we need to have a very strict definition of what is a cyber incident and what is not. It's true. You know, a port scan is not a cyber incident, right? right. But, or maybe an email attachment even in a lot of cases isn't a... Yeah. Is every phishing email that anyone in the employee get or right. every any, every employee of the company gets a cyber incident? Right. Well, and uh, and we have quoted semantic's it, number. If someone opens it, is it semantic
0: so, has reported to literally to Congress, to freaking Congress? Semantic reported every infection detection that semantic clients detected, which was in the billions and billions. Like it was like what was it three hundred billion? Well, I
1: remember uh, when talk, NASA reported the like half a million yeah. cyber attacks a year or something like that.
0: Yeah. Which is, you know, just the antivirus flagging stuff and they're
1: reporting yep. it as a cyber or, attack. Or, you know, every port scan and right. every right. suspicious packet. and
0: Yeah, yeah, that is a big problem. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, yep. The other problem is, is I've also learned there's a federal exemption to reporting that you've been hacked that you can apply for, that the Obama administration has to approve. But you can actually get exemption from notifying the public you've been hacked at all. And the companies that most often go for that are banks.
2: Yep. So there you go.
1: Uh, and yeah. I can see why the government would be on board with that, though. <laughs> uh, so then a uh, Bitcoin exchange called AllCrypt yeah. uh, turns out to have no clue what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so they had a WordPress blog installed on the server that also had their wallet file. Oh, WordPress. no. No. And, uh, no. So, and also, like apparently, So their whole thing is like they had an SQL database uh, that's where their exchange happens. And then there's some like, backup where the wallet file knows how much money you're supposed to have or whatever. So anyway, the guy managed to hack an email account. Then with that, he sent a password reset for the admin of the, of the WordPress blog. But it wasn't the person whose email account he had hacked. But that person got the email being like, I didn't request a password reset. So he forwarded it <laughs> to all the sysadmins, one of them being the person with a hacked email account. So the hacker managed to get the password reset link. Even though it wasn't emailed compromised, break. because the person, the marketing director person who got it, forwarded it to the administrator, being like, "I didn't request mm. this," which is kind of what they're supposed mm. to do. But he didn't know that is so delicious. That is
0: so amazingly oh, delicious. What? A- yeah. Oh wow.
1: Well, anyway, that's what they say happened. I don't know if that's actually what happened. That's, that's, I believe that's it. A guess of how he got it. I believe it. Anyway, once he got in t- uh, as a man in the WordPress, he uploaded his own plugin that gave him a shell on the machine and with that he managed to get the word uh the mysql password and apparently for some reason that mysql user that runs the blog had access to the database that runs the rest of the site so i'm guessing they like gave wordpress the root sql login or something Ugh, horrible being lazy you know first of all the wordpress probably shouldn't have been, the blog shouldn't be on the same machine as the wallet and the bitcoin exchange yeah. software yeah even if it is it should have a separate database credentials that are not shared with the other one yeah and it shouldn't be able to do directory traversal to find the other site and on and on. But anyway. Classic. Uh, now, so they had a security system where the transaction system didn't rely on the information in the SQL database to decide uh, who had how much money or whatever. And so, you know, he started selling off bitcoins and then he hit the limit that the wallet didn't believe that he had any more bitcoins, even though he had used the SQL commands to modify his user to have tons of bitcoins. Mm. Uh, so, but then he figured out that if he sold his fake Bitcoins for Dogecoins then he would actually the, <laughs> the system would actually give him the Dogecoins oh. which he could then sell back for real Bitcoins oh. that he could then pull out this guy was having a blast yeah uh, and again the problem is that their, their blog here where they're saying what happens is, is this is what they think happened <laughs> uh, they seem to be kind of it's kind of in their interest to make it seem a little more sophisticated than it might have been so we're not sure exactly what happened, Very but true. Very true. Uh, because they had WordPress uh, on the same server and horrible security practices, all the coins in all crypt are gone.
0: That's a harsh reality. Yeah, that's a pretty. Why people mistake.
1: trust random Bitcoin exchanges? I I'll never understand. I,
0: word of mouth. But maybe also, I can't what's figure it up out with like
1: a live wallet and also having you know, obviously not good enough safeguards and the WordPress blog on the same machine. Come on. The guy
0: that wrote that blog post himself lost $15,000 in Bitcoin
1: <laughs> from this. That's well, that, so the company, I guess. Oh, it is all crypto
0: so says, yes, yeah, so who's writing this? We've only made 10 BCC over the last 13 months of operation between hardware and operating cost, I'm personally down over $15,000. Oh, that's what he's saying.
1: Ah, well, <laughs> the fact that you have a Bitcoin exchange with not that many customers, but you, we pay a full-time marketing director seems like you kind of deserve what you got. Maybe a little cart before the horse there.
2: It's a little bit. But anyway,
1: uh, yeah, don't trust fly-by-night Bitcoin exchanges, as if anybody hadn't learned that one yet. But a couple more people got stung, maybe a little <sighs> m- m- Yeah. All right, Alan, well,
0: guess what? That brings us to the end of the TechSnap program. Uh, we'd love to have you join us live. TechSnap's even better live because we have a segment breaks where we chat with the chat room and uh, – you know, chat with you guys and kind of get ideas we, and, and it turns or out we didn't forget. get and, title and, suggestions or things like that. It's actually a pretty great experience. So just join us live, jblive.tv, Thursdays. We start at 1 a.m. 1 a.m. Jeez. 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, twenty
1: hundred UTC.
2: Boom.
0: Or jblive.info for the audio-only version. And don't forget, we've got RSS feeds so you can subscribe and get the show weekly. We've got that subreddit to make the show even better over at techsnap.reddit.com. But that will bring us to... Oh, actually, I should probably plead for emails because I think we're close yes. to none. So go over to the contact page, send in your questions to the TechSnap show or fill them out on the subreddit or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com so that way we've got a whole new mail sack
1: for next week. Yes. All right, also, if you don't have a Snap t-shirt yet, tspring.com oh, yeah. slash techsnap. Yep. Uh, and Absolutely. Uh, yeah. hope to see people at Linux Fest Northwest yeah. uh, about a month from now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's going to be really cool. Go there and uh, say hi to Alan I in person and Mm -hmm. uh, we'll be there for Saturday and Sunday so and probably Friday night too okay everybody well thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap we'll see you right back here